You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, dear friends. Good to have you with us today. Remember now, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in the fight. And right now, today, somewhere in the world, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. Hey, friends, good to see you again. Good to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so very much for being a part of this uh, listening audience and this growing community of people that care about discipleship and care about making disciples of the nations. I'm so delighted today to have on this podcast a new friend of mine. Uh, We have just met and been talking off air here a little bit, but he's a professor of theology at Quincy University in Quincy, Illinois. But more particularly, uh, more relevant to this week is he has written a book that had just won kind of like a, a major award. It's Why the Gospel, Living the Good News of Jesus with Purpose, put out by Baker Academic. Uh, is that right? Baker Academic? Nope, nope. Erdman's for the Erdman's. I knew that. Matthew, yeah. I knew that. I knew that. Anyway, right. Matthew Bates has written this thing with the Erdman's and uh, it's the CT. It's a Christianity Today Book of the Year in Practical Theology. Now, Matthew... One of the reasons we know you and love you is because we were lurching around trying to find people who we thought maybe would write the book that we wrote on good works. Maybe, maybe, maybe would write an, us a nice thing. And you were one of the guys that stepped up and says, man, love it. And you wrote a glowing recommendation of it on the back cover of it. Let me just say thank you for that. And uh, But if anybody, any, if any book deserves practical theology book of the year, one would think it's doctrine of good works. <laughs> works are yeah. kind of practical aren't they they are yeah um i don't know why you you guys um, obviously uh, congratulations to you and and uh, tom and caleb for uh winning um the the academic uh award in theology um but my one mine mine was the popular award which maybe makes me wonder maybe you won the unpopular award <laughs> well um, i i don't know what does maybe, that say but, right what does that say that to say one is popular and that the other's not right what does that mean <laughs> i have no idea i'm a but academic i mean some of those chapters even i have a tough time reading through and then staying awake but truth of the matter is i think they're both uh, probably pretty important books and i just thank you for your good work and not only on that book but uh you written some others a book called gospel allegiance and the one i'm working through right now uh matthew is salvation by allegiance alone mm-hmm. And uh, very provocative, very, very interesting. And I think actually when you start thinking about it, it, just makes perfect sense. But I think we need to be challenged with these things. So this is Matthew Bates with us here today. He's written this book, Why the Gospel, Living the Good News of Jesus with Purpose. And at the end of the day, folks, what we want you to do is say, man, I want to go get this book. And we want you to go get this book. We think it's an important one. Why the Gospel? So what is the gospel? Of course, is a critical question, Matthew, but you try to answer why the gospel in this book. So I want to get to that. But since you covered what is the gospel in a couple of other your books, can you give us that just in a little bit of a nutshell, what you try to say, particularly in gospel allegiance and salvation by allegiance alone, what is the gospel? 
Yeah, the gospel is that Jesus is the king or Jesus is the Christ. That's the most common way of presenting the gospel in the New Testament is, is simply the bare assertion that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And the problem is that we've tended to turn the gospel into something else um, and to turn it into a more of a me-centered story. So um, part of the articulation in um, uh, other books, but this book, especially the Why the Gospel book, is to kind of uh, provide some reframing. So if we want to expand, though, when we say what is the gospel beyond the bare assertion Jesus is the Christ, well, it's a narrative about um, the process by which Jesus became the saving king. Uh, so we would want to talk about how um, the Father sent the Son to take on human flesh. So it begins with the Father sending the Son, and then uh, we have the Incarnation, obviously, as part of that story. Uh, but he's incarnated in the line of David seems to be something that's urgent in the New Testament uh, as the fulfillment of God's promises. Uh, so the Gospel is a continuation of what God has been doing all along and uh, bringing his promises to a climax. Uh, but then he dies for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and we don't want to neglect the cross as a key component of the gospel, uh, and that um, the cross is something that is for our sake or for our benefit, right, as he dies on the on the cross for our sins. But um, the gospel doesn't stop there, and sometimes people stop the gospel there. Uh, the gospel continues that he was buried, emphasizing the reality of his death, and then his resurrection. Uh, he's raised um, uh, because he's the one who has, um, the one who has new life and has new creation power. And then he's seen by many witnesses. And then, um, again, I think we do okay often at getting the gospel that far, but I think a lot of the energy in the New Testament goes beyond that with the gospel to speak about Jesus' ascension to the right hand, where he now is ruling. And that's when he becomes the Christ in the fullest sense, once he begins to rule. Uh, and then the, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, uh, and then Jesus will return one day. That all, all those, all those claims that I just put put out there, those are all things that are said to be gospel more than one time in the New Testament. One of the things uh, I I've enjoyed a uh, E. Stanley Jones. I don't know if that name's familiar to you or not. Methodist missionary, long deceased. But one of the things he said was uh, the whole Pentecost piece is frequently left out of our Christianity. And how can we leave that out? God wants to come and live in us and through mm -hmm. us for a uh, for this, the implication of this kingship. Yeah, yeah, I think that it's certainly, um, those things really are um, neglected when we think about the gospel. People, of course, are aware of those as part of the Christian story, but they they don't tend to focus on them as part of the good news itself. Okay, right? so um, let's let's pivot here to why the gospel. That's, that's what this book is about, and I want you to have ample time to explain this concept to us. Why the gospel is, as you say, largely about the kingship of Jesus, but why is that theme so necessary, particularly necessary for today, Matthew? Well, I think on the one hand, we would want to start by saying that it's it's clearly part of the gospel in the New Testament and really maybe even the climax of the gospel. But if you hear um, you know, a typical gospel presentation, the focus is so heavy on the cross, um, which, which praise be to God for the cross, right? I mean, who would want to neglect that? Uh, but on the other hand, we've got to go beyond that and get the full story, and that is that Jesus has become the king. And the reason why that's so important to get right is because forgiveness only comes through his kingship. It doesn't come apart from his kingship. And we're so anxious to be forgiven by God that we we want to short circuit that and just get to that good part. But we sometimes don't realize that, that it only comes 
through his kingship because it comes as we gather under his banner. As we confess Jesus is Lord or Jesus is King, uh, usually this would be the premier place to do that would be at our baptism, right? As we make that confession that he is our King, uh, then the Holy Spirit fills us and we're forgiven. Like that salvation is applied to our lives through his kingship as he then pours out the Holy Spirit. So we can't neglect that as part of the gospel because it's essential to 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 keep that element at the forefront because the benefit of the gospel is forgiveness. It's not the gospel itself. Uh, the benefit of it um, that, that comes through the gospel will be forgiveness of sins as that gets applied to our lives. Um, so on the one hand, I mean, I think that's a, a quick answer of why it matters. Now I can circle back and speak more about in this moment in time with culture and things like that more if you wish, but you can also take me somewhere else. No, well, for, I, I, I do want to get to that. I think it's important, but having said that, let me ask you this: what does a what does a faith look like if we stop at the cross? If we don't really want to go further, we want to be forgiven. We love uh, what the blood has done for our sins. Now we're going to kind of truncate our faith and stop right there. What's that? What's that look like? Well, one of my um, favorite popular level theologians is Dallas Willard, and uh, I love the imagery he uses to speak about this of, of uh, people who just want a little bit of Jesus's blood but don't want anything more to do with him. Uh, he calls these people vampire Christians, mm. uh, vampire Christians. Um, and uh, he, he, I think that in even calling them Christians, he might be a little too charitable. I don't know that that's actually a Christian position, that we can just want a little bit of Jesus's blood, but then don't really want anything else to do with his lordship over our lives. Um, and uh, I think you would agree with that claim as well. So uh, anyway, um, yeah, I think that the problem is whenever we reduce the gospel to the cross, we might think that the gospel is all about just trusting Jesus's death and its effectiveness or believing that the narrative is true in some way. But it doesn't include the more effective um, dimensions of actually giving loyalty to King Jesus, um, which I think is critical to understanding what the word pistis or faith means in the New Testament. Yeah, and that's pretty important to your books, uh, Gospel Legions and Salvation by Legions alone. Pretty much the book I'm reading through right now, yeah. <laughs> Salvation by Legions alone, you go flat into that word pistis. So describe that very briefly for us here, just this, this elite, it's not enough to say, I accept that forgiveness, but now I've got to sell out to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Yeah. Yeah. When, when Paul talks about the purpose of the gospel, um, we're starting to answer this question of why the gospel a bit. The most explicit statement in the New Testament, probably about the why of the gospel, um, Paul says it twice, once in Romans 1.5 and once in Romans 16.26, but that it's it's for the obedience of faith among all the nations as they as, as they respond to Jesus as the Christ or Jesus as the Lord. And so this language, the obedience of pistis, um, like some translations, I think, do that a disservice by saying it's the obedience produced by faith. There, that's that's a theological overlay that we don't find in the Greek text. Um, it's it's just a what's in technically called a genitive or an of relationship, the obedience of faith. And I think that the strongest case is that that's just uh, something that's more qualitative or adjectival, so that we would have loyal obedience or a faithful obedience or a, a fidelity shaped obedience or allegiant obedience, uh, and that's that's the main purpose of the gospel is that we give our loyalty to King Jesus at the end of the day. So that's um, something of the importance of that word pistis. I have a, I have a mentor. I, I asked him one day, so what's the first thing you teach 
uh, a young disciple. Someone just came to Christ. Now you're going to build them up in the faith. What What do you teach them? What's the first thing? He says, well, Jesus is the king and I am not. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that yes. is. That, and, and I think by extension, and you are not. And yes. So, but why would that be good news? Because I think putting me at the center of my life that's the good news of, say, 2023. Uh, why is giving that up to King Jesus, giving that allegiance to King Jesus, why, why is that good news? Why is that the gospel? Yeah. Um, so chapter one of why the gospel um, gives you a, gives a little bit of a narrative of my own life about how, um, uh, yeah, as a young man, I had encountered Jesus in some way and was responding to him both as Savior and as Lord somewhat. Um, but maybe not the Lord part as much as I needed to learn um, to respond to him. Uh, and as part of that, I discovered through um, a series of not entirely tragic uh, things that I'm not a very good king of my own life. I give some something of that narrative in, in the book. And that, yeah, when I try to take charge of my own life, and by that, I mean, I try to define good and evil for myself. I try to... Um, yeah, to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I, I, I take control of my own life, especially moral autonomy or ethical autonomy. That's what I'm talking about. And I try to define my own life rather than submit to Jesus's way of life and his his guiding, his guiding both rules, but his guiding example, um, his his Holy Spirit infused obedience, um, demanding life. Uh, whenever I don't do that, things don't turn out well for me or for people around me. It ends up, it ends up introducing harm into the world. And so, uh, part of the good news is not just that Jesus forgives our sins, but that Jesus is um, providing a, um, a restorative example that as we live into his life, restoration begins to happen for us. Mm. One of your endorsers uh, of the book, talked about the practical discipleship theology that arises out of this text of yours. So dis describe some of that for us. What's the practical dynamics of Jesus is king and I'm not? Some of the practical dynamics have has to do with how transformation takes place for us. And I get into this, especially in chapter five of the book, which is called Royal Transformation. Um, but the book, um, the book really focuses on the idea that we're made in the image of God and that the gospel is about restoration of glory. And that there's an appropriate human glory that is something that actually brings glory to God. Like we're we're sometimes taught that glory is wrong um, and that we're supposed to like just be meek mouses and uh, and to kind of give all the credit to God. Um, on the one hand, there's truth to that, but on the other hand, um, there's some danger because God is most glorified as our glory is recovered. And um, so I lead um, readers through the, the biblical evidence behind um, that that idea of the restoration of glory. But the, the kind of the climax of that restoration of glory comes about as we actually view Jesus, as we as disciples are invited to come and see, and that transformation in the Bible happens through viewing, so that we have to be very intentional in how we view Jesus. And we have to like be aware of other images we're viewing and find a way to decenter them and give them less time and to focus our eyes on Jesus, uh, because it's as we become more and more persuaded through an intent intentional viewing of him, it's that's that's what awakens desire in us and desire to change is we we begin to really see, no, the life Jesus is exemplifying is truly the good life. 
if indeed the world was a place where people were not committing adultery, wouldn't the world be better? If the world was a place where there was no lust, wouldn't the world be better? If it was a world where we forgave our enemies, wouldn't the world be, we have to, we have to see this vision and like meditate on it. And in so doing, our desires begin to change and we begin to be transformed into the image. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that finally then we're conformed to the image of Jesus. That would be um, a very, very quick overview of um, some of the practical material that I lead um, the reader through material that can be connected to the Sermon on the Mount and to other material uh, in the life of Jesus and in that royal transformation. We're talking with Matthew Bates. He's written a book called Why the Gospel? Living the Good News of Jesus with Purpose. He's professor of theology at Quincy University in Quincy, Illinois. And you want to get this book for a number of reasons, but not the least of which a lot of people, like a lot of people think it's like the best book this year in popular theology. So there you go. Erdman's put it out, uh, and I'm delighted uh, to have it on order myself, Matthew. So listen, uh, Christ the King Sunday was just a couple of weeks ago. Not everybody celebrates Christ the King Sunday, but uh, I looked in the lectionary uh, wondering what I ought to be doing for the Advent season. That's the Sunday before Advent begins. And the passage it had us cover was Matthew 25, 31 to 46, mm. where the king has people in front of him sheep and goats. And he says, mm-hmm. I was hungry. You fed me. And as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. I was hungry, thirsty, sick in prison. How central is a teaching like that? How necessary is it for the recovery of Christian culture in our day? Absolutely essential, I think, because we can be misguided into um thinking that somehow or another what we do with our bodies is irrelevant for our salvation. And um, I I know I'm preaching to the choir and speaking to you about this, as um, you're obviously deeply invested in understanding the doctrine of good works and how that connects to our salvation. Uh, But there's often mistakes around this, um, especially within popular evangelicalism, um, which of which here it's just my own tradition right, that I grew up in, right? And so I'm I'm not being critical in the sense of uh, other than I'm trying to love my brothers uh, who are very dear to my heart, um, uh, speaking critically only in that way. But um, there can tend to be a mistake in those circles in particular to believe that somehow or another um, doing works is the great enemy of the faith or is de- are they dangerous in some way. And so that we don't want to start trusting them. And if we're doing good works, we might like fall into this death trap of works righteousness or legalism. Um, and so there's a lack of concern with good works um, and an assertion that Jesus has done it all for us uh, and so that we don't um, have to do anything. Um, and there's a number of just sort of uh, that's just sort of a sloppy way of framing salvation. A truer way to speak about salvation would be that that faith itself, once we understand what faith is, that the word pistis itself is an embodied action, that it's not something that is just purely a mental thing, uh, but it is something that is relational and externalized. Here I draw especially on the work of um, a New Testament scholar and classicist, Teresa Morgan, uh, who has written this marvelous book called Roman Faith and Christian Faith, where she is a 500-page Oxford monograph where she looks in nitty-gritty detail about how the word pistis 
how the verb pistuo, um, how they were used in uh, the Greco-Roman world and in the New Testament. And that's her chief conclusion is that this term is relational and externalized, uh, meaning that it, it isn't always, but it's, it, it is consistently um, used to speak about um, relationships that are something that someone else could observe. Mm. Um, and so anyway, the upshot of all that is that uh, there's an enormous amount of importance on doing good works and um, passages like Matthew 25, they remind us um, that that yeah, that the final judgment will be on the basis of works, that works in some way are connected to our, our outworked or outlived faith. So, of course, you know, we've written a book on this and I've, I've read plenty of what you've written on similar topics. How did that message right there, what you just said, get so discounted in evangelicalism today? Yeah, that's a that's a question we need to probably like, you know, dial up Tom McCall on speed dial to get him to answer as he would have a greater expertise, I think, on, um, you know, the history of works and, uh, you know, how um, – yeah, like the narrative, you know, as he's steeped in all of that um, literature from early Protestantism, and he could probably pinpoint the morphing more more particularly than I could. Well, so I let me the, let me let me, ahead, let, me sure. let me destroy that premise for you here real quick. We asked Tom that, so we were at the Ohio <laughs> Christian University, and it was uh, Tom McCall, uh, the great Tom McCall. Then it was uh, the great Caleb Freedom, and then it was me. So anyway, we're all speaking, and someone asked that question. So when did this happen? The uh, the scholastics were all the reformed scholastics were all up in the works. I mean, necessary mm -hmm. for salvation. Absolutely. They say it over and over and over again. When did that change? And uh, he didn't know. And so yeah. someone stepped up to the microphone. I don't know if you know the name John Oswald. John Oswald mm -hmm. was there, a great Old Testament scholar. And he says, sure. I tell you what I think it was. He says, I think it was a fundamentalist modernist debates. Mm -hmm where fundamentalism says we're taking this part of the gospel and we're going back into our corner. And they didn't take the part that said, do good works. Is that a possibility that that's when this whole thing shifted? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak authoritatively to that because that's a sort of a history of ideas thing. Those things are hard to tease out sometimes. Um, yeah, it's possible. Certainly. My sense is that probably it's one of those things that as people have tried to simplify over the years, like it's, it's mostly, if I was guessing, I would think it might go back to like people like Moody, like evangelisms, you know, like kind of evangelistic efforts like that, where there was an attempt to kind of present a plan of salvation and to simplify it. And um, as part of that, it's just easy to shear off really important parts. But I don't know. I mean, certainly by the time we get to like the 1980s and we have Zane Hodges and the Free Grace Movement, that's where we see kind of the climax of this, um, where there's this assertion that all you need to do is believe or trust that Jesus is the Savior and that his lordship is completely irrelevant, which is 100% um, the opposite of what the New Testament teaches. I don't know how it's even possible to read the New Testament and to arrive at that kind of conclusion. Uh, truly. So no, I think no, I think that's that may be it. We tried to simplify the gospel so much for our evangelistic campaigns. We just left some important things out, and it'd certainly be one of those things. But th that kind of morphs into the next question. Uh, you say that a call to the king is a call to something more than the individualistic gospel. So describe what that more is more than the individualistic gospel. So what is that? 
Well, when we think about salvation from a God's eye standpoint, I think we're in a better place. Like um, we often like the individualistic gospel says like, okay, I have a sin problem and I'm on my way to hell. So what do I need to do in order to change the circumstance so that I can get right with God and go to heaven or have a relationship with him or however that wants to be framed? Like, but we, when we look at um, more the question of why God gave the gospel from a biblical standpoint, God, God sends the son in order to redeem creation because his concern is creation wide. It's not just like God doesn't just want to save each individual human just because that's a neat thing idea to rescue them from hell so they can go to heaven. Um, that's sort of, a again, a theological overlay. Um, what's What the Bible is more concerned about is that humans are failing within God's creation project and causing God's whole creation project to fail. So God wants to restore his own glory in the midst of creation, and he needs to do that by restoring human glory. So once humans are doing what humans are called to do, and they're properly honoring God and they're properly stewarding creation, that brings honor to God. But it also allows creation to flourish once more. Mm -hmm. um, so a less individualistic gospel will have a God's eye view of his whole creation project. Um, and so it's both social and political too, uh, as uh, the proclamation Jesus is king is something that constitutes the church as God's as as the citizen body under King Jesus, mm. uh, and so it's something that's a collective thing that we are together then um, uh, imaging uh, God correctly into the world uh, as a church. We uh, we started on this, didn't quite get to it, so let's get to it now. Does Jesus as King? Now, in some sense, it doesn't matter whether this Jesus as King motif. Uh, it's truth. It's not a motif. It's it's this. It's a center dynamic of the gospel. Does it matter whether it has appeal to the younger people today or not? And I say it doesn't matter if it's the gospel truth, it's the gospel truth. But still, I want to know from you, is Jesus as king, Jesus as Lord, Jesus is in charge and you're not, is that going to attract young people or is it going to be a barrier to them coming to know Jesus as, as king and Lord? Well, certainly it's a barrier to all of us in the sense that that's our central human problem, right, is that we we want to be kings of our own life, when, especially with regard to our moral choices. We we want to do what our bodies want to do, especially, and experience the the bodily pleasures that, um, that we want to experience, and we don't want to listen to what God wants to say uh, about such things until the Holy Spirit um, helps us and we begin to learn the goodness of God. Uh, but I think the light, um, the light of Jesus simultaneously attracts and repels everybody. Uh, anyway, but with regard to younger people, I do think some of the reasons why we're losing um, people, both people not joining the church, people who have never been interested, including younger people, um, and people who are leaving it who are jaded, I think a lot of these are have to do with the discipleship failure. Um, and I would like be following the Barna Group's studies here, sociological studies that would say, okay, there's lots of things we could identify as problems in the church, but they they, they mostly stem back to a discipleship failure. Um, and so I think as young people um, are discipled into King Jesus and uh, they're given a mission, right, as they see that Jesus is the king and he demands my whole life. He doesn't just demand a, a small subsection of my brain that somehow trusting him will meanwhile my body can go its own way. I think that's enormously appealing and it undercuts hypocrisy. Uh, one of the things that is destroying the church and turning young people away uh, is the sense that, well, Christians say that they believe Jesus is Lord and he's their Savior, but they seem to be acting horribly 
Um, well, um, a King Jesus gospel begins to correct that as it holds mind and body together more successfully and helps us to see why discipleship is actually saving. Something the church has always struggled with is to explain why is it that Jesus says that being a disciple is not optional for our salvation? Um, within a model of justification by faith, there's been difficulty at like trying to get a, you know, trying to bring together discipleship with what Paul teaches about justification. I think that the, the gospel allegiance model royal allegiance model can hold them together. And uh, I do think that will help our youth. Mm. Listen, I have a dear friend named Al Coppage who wrote a book for IVP academic years ago. It was called The Portraits of God. In that book, he talks about eight major portraits, eight major roles of God. And King is one of them, but that's not the only one. There's shepherd, father, creator, revealer, judge, redeemer, and priest. But he says, if we take one of them, uh, and, and explode it too big at the expense of the others, we get kind of a warped discipleship dynamic going. So when you talk about Jesus as king, is that the only way we ought to talk about him? Or are there other things we ought to you know, get to the table? There are other things we need to bring to the table. Obviously, the scripture gives us a whole lot of metaphors for understanding who Jesus is or images, right? Um, and, you know, I think, though, that the Christ is the central one. And that if we if we move it out of the center, we, we distort. And it's so central that we, we often forget its significance, right? We often like Jesus Christ. It's just, or we just say Christ, but that's just another way of thinking about Jesus. We don't, we kind of dispense of the royal overtones of all that. But even some of the other images, like shepherd is a royal royal image, for instance, you know, um, in, in ancient Israel. And we, we, we would be misguided if we didn't see uh, the ways in which that is a very much a royal image. So I think that the royal imagery we do have to kind of keep as the, uh, the, the focal point. And I would see them as having like, you know, maybe gra graded or concentric circles, right? As we move out from there, well, you, we might move from the Christ or the King metaphor being central to other ones that are important, like savior or priest or shepherd or, you know, and we kind of expand the circle outward from there. Uh, and I think that that's a way of um, helping to kind of keep a hierarchy of images in our mind. Uh, yes, I, I do think that without the richness of the images, of course, we would lose something. Uh, but we're also in danger if we don't make what's central central. Hmm. The book is Why the Gospel. Uh, I recommend it to you all. Go, go get this volume. And uh, Matthew Bates writes it, does a tremendous job with all his writing. Yeah, got a couple other books too, Gospel Allegiance, and I'm reading right now, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, which is uh, wonderful, provocative, very interesting and challenging. Uh, what happens, Matthew, if we don't take the premise of why the gospel seriously? Well, um, if we don't know why God gave the gospel, then we're in danger of of, of creating our own reasons that that distort the gospel. Um, and uh, we've seen, I think, the disastrous consequences of this church of this in the church, right? Where we have made the gospel into uh, simply a story about me and my need for salvation, so that I can have my forgiveness or my debt cleared away, but that it doesn't demand discipleship in any kind of fashion. And I think we've seen the ill fruit of that. Uh, and so I think a uh, when we understand why God gave the gospel, that it's for the obedience among all the nations, and that it's out of his abundant love for all creation, um, and that it's connected to God's restorative aims, not just his forgiving aims, but his aims to restore us holistically, uh, we end up with a church that's flourishing for the sake of the world. Hmm. Matthew Bates here with us. The book is Why the Gospel. And Matthew, listen, been a real honor. 
to have you on the program today. I want to thank you again for giving your endorsement to uh, our book, The Doctrine of Good Works. But listen, congratulations on this good book, on the award that it just won this week. And furthermore, congratulations on a great career. You're doing well. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. All right, Matthew Bates. All right, it's a wrap. Been an honor to have you listening today to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast with Matt Friedemann. Always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life-Changing Discipleship today. We want you to love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon. <music>